Chapter Twenty Five of One Commonplace Day by Pansy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Pledges. Still, there had been anxiety during all these months. The school term closed, and the daughter came home, sweet, cheerful, dutiful as ever, yet changed. She never spoke of Leonard Airedale, but that she thought of him, the mother was almost sure. She was interested in many of her old pursuits, but in a quieter way than ever before. She cared almost nothing for the gay world around her. She held herself aloof from society when she could. She danced no more. "'I think I don't approve of it, Mamma," she said. "'Not for myself, at least. I believe I know many girls for whom I don't approve of it. They grow too fond of it. It is almost an intoxication.' I think they are led on, unconsciously, to say and do things that they would not in more sober moments. And, if some are so influenced, can it be good for others to set them an example in that direction? All this was satisfaction to the mother, but the daughter's sentence was apt to close with a gentle little afterthought. Besides, Mamma, I don't think I could care to dance now. And that part the mother did not like. After a little she sent Mildred away to new scenes. Fanny Copeland begged for a visit. Mildred was willing to go, perhaps the change would be good for her. It was. She came back improved, energized perhaps is the word. She had had little or no idea of Christian work in the world. The mother before her had none. This mother was not born for a leader, and came in contact with none who tried to lead her but mildred had evidently received an uplift in this direction she began to question about woman's work the woman's christian association the woman's christian temperance union the woman's missionary society what did all these mean how were they working mamma why are we not in them was the question which startled mrs powers mildred at an afternoon picnic had been gently pushed forward into the working christian world and came home to find her place. The mother was pleased and helpful. She believed in temperance with all her heart. She believed in trying to save young men. But she found herself unwilling to have Mildred think of, pray for, plan for, one young man in Chicago. And that the loyal, trusting heart did just this, she was almost sure. On the whole, the mother could but feel that the bit of the world which she had let take hold of her daughter for a time had sowed its seed, and much she feared the fruit would be tares. Do you understand now why, in a sense, this letter was a relief? Leonard Airedale, who had presumed to be her daughter's friend, a forger, gambler, a drunkard, was miserable enough. But Leonard Airedale, a married man, was an instant and intense relief. Well she knew that girlhood, which at a certain age almost loves to make of itself a martyr, would be blinded with high-sounding words such as sacrifice, and self-abdignation, and soul-saving. But a true, pure-hearted girl would recognize marriage vows, however recklessly taken, as solemn barriers between her and any attempt at self-sacrifice of the sort which this phase sometimes covers. I am glad, though, that Mrs. Powers, with her instant sense of relief, was woman enough and mother enough not to show it just then. She called presently, "'Daughter, come here,' and the tone was so sweet and so full of tender sympathy 
that Mildred turned instantly and sank down in a wilted little mass on the floor and buried her face in her mother's lap. It is a hard letter, Mildred, and yet a very kind one. I honor the man who wrote it for not glossing over the hard truths in the mistaken name of friendship. We can believe what he says in the future. We will try, daughter, to save the souls of this young man and woman. We will try to save the poor wife from as much misery as we can, shall we not? Mrs. Power's voice was firm over the word wife. Mildred must, of course, recognize that fact from the first. There was no answer. There was a long silence, and there were no sobs. At last, Mildred's voice. Mama, do you think, I mean, might it not have been possible that, if I had corresponded with him and helped him to feel that I was his friend through everything, he might not have gone in this way? It might have been. This was the miserable thought which was evidently tearing her heart. Her mother made prompt and decisive answer. My daughter, no. Don't let Satan wring your heart with any such false charge as that. It is one of the most specious lies that he ever invented with which to ruin poor women. The young man who could not be helped by the memory of a pure friendship, and with the possibility of a future such as he held out before himself, could have been only injured by being treated as though he were in every way worthy of respect and friendship. Think of it, Mildred. What do marriage vows mean to him? He was actually planning to desert the poor girl whom he had ruined. But, Mama, he was not himself when he married her. Mildred's voice was hard. Her mother's probing cut her like a knife. My daughter, does that excuse him? Will you think for a moment what must have passed between the two before they reached the point where a proposal of marriage would have been possible? It is time, Mildred, that you opened your eyes to this thing wide enough to see that God, in his mercy, has saved you from a bad man. He has all the elements that go to make up a weak and wicked character. I felt it from the first, as you too would have done, had you not been young in trusting and accustomed to meeting familiarly only those worthy of trust. I prayed God to open your eyes. I take shame to myself, Mildred, that I, who should have been both mother and father to you, was so careless of my trust, and let the world come in with its specious reasoning and steal away my darling. I ought to have shielded you from its snares. I have wept over it bitterly, darling, and I must continue to do so, for I see the experience has left you with a sore heart. You must forgive your mother, Mildred. Mamma, dear mamma, don't. I cannot bear it. You never did anything that was not just right. Mildred was weeping bitterly now. Her mother held her lovingly and smoothed the soft bands of hair and murmured tender words and felt keenly that the world which she had tried to serve had cast sharp thorns into her darling's experience. But better now than later. Think of that poor, sinned-against, ignorant, motherless girl-wife in Chicago. While these experiences were being lived in Chicago and Washington, life at Eastwood was by no means at a standstill. Satan was busy, of course. I have often wondered over his tirelessness. Without doubt the Holy Spirit was also at work, but his co-laborers on earth were neither so numerous nor so enthusiastic in many cases as were Satan's, and the immediate results were not so apparent. Still, work was being done. 
for instance the temperance element had bestirred itself as the immediate outgrowth of those saturday evening prayer meetings and inaugurated a series of popular temperance meetings at least they tried to make them popular they engaged a fairly good speaker and secured one of the churches and by dint of much coaxing prevailed upon a number of young people to take hold of the singing and placarded the town giving everybody a cordial invitation to a gospel temperance meeting the evening arrived so did the speaker the singers a goodly number of them were in attendance and sung well but the audience at least so far as regarded numbers was certainly a failure the young man who had come to speak to them for no other return than the payment of his expenses had some good things to say but he had to say them to many empty seats a few standard temperance people such as are to be found in every community were out two ministers were out and two were not and a great company of christians and nominal temperance people were at home or somewhere else this for various reasons some of them did not believe in temperance apart from religion though who were anxious that this temperance effort should be considered apart from religion did not appear some were sure that everything which could be said on the subject had been said and what was the use in hearing it over again some did not like the speaker's politics and though this was in no sense to be a political lecture they would have none of him some asked to what denomination he belonged and on being told shrugged their shoulders and remained at home some said what is the use i have been to temperance meetings ever since i was a child and it is all talk no results ever appear which amount to anything for my part i am discouraged and they too stayed away well the people who came listened and sang and did what they could and at the close of the lecture the total abstinence pledge was circulated then began surprises for some people a few advanced and unhesitatingly signed their names good old deacons and elders who had signed temperance pledges ever since they were children one minister signed unhesitatingly the other sat still people waited for him he was asked to come at once so there need be no holding back on his account no he would not sign why not was he not a temperance man oh yes indeed to the core but he did not believe in signing the pledge a man who like himself never touched alcoholic liquors and who settled this whole question long ago had no need of pledges to sign one would be a mere form and promises were too solemn things to be made thus lightly was ever such absurd reasoning known a pledge a light thing because a man knew he would keep it yet this was what the minister said but what about the drinking man who really needed the help of the pledge no it was worse than nonsense for him he couldn't keep it and he knew he couldn't and it was simply teaching him to think lightly of a promise i by no means give you the entire statement only a glance at some of its remarkable logic among those who wouldn't sign was lloyd mclean this puzzled and troubled some of his friends notably mr cleveland and miss wainwright i thought you were willing to help us the former said so i am and i'm doing it haven't i sung till i'm hoarse the singing is all right but just now i want the signing why do you refuse such a simple thing partly on account of its simplicity it is a confession of weakness which i do not choose to make 
I'm in no danger from the stuff, and I won't pretend that I am by going up there and signing. Not even to help someone else who is in danger? Oh, I've no influence with this crowd. There is no one here who knows me. I tried to get Bruce to come. If he were here, I don't know what I might do. And Lloyd McLean sighed. Though he had no conception of the danger in which his friend stood, still he had of late become suspicious that all was not well with him in this direction. Mr. Cleveland caught at the hint. McLean, he will hear of it. He is sure to hear of everything that is done at this meeting. You can influence him by your action, even though he is absent. But Lloyd shook his head. No, he had always felt a sort of prejudice against the pledge and there was Dr. Atwood, who evidently felt the same. He might certainly be excused from trying to make a parade of his supposed influence when a minister did not feel the responsibility. There was still another important one who utterly refused to sign his name. That was John Hartzell. No, he never meant to drink again. He wasn't afraid that he should. He had gotten down pretty low, he knew, but a man who couldn't stop drinking when he had made up his mind to wasn't enough of a man to have any talk over, and wasn't going to be helped anyhow by simply writing his name. Lloyd McLean was disturbed at this, and astonished. Why should such a poor wretch as John Hartzell hesitate when he had once resolved to drop the stuff? The man certainly had no dignity to lose, and much to gain by the step. He leaned forward and added his urging to Mr. Cleveland's. Hartzell, why in the world don't you sign off and show all these people that you mean business? Why don't you? I, said Lloyd, why, I have no occasion. They all know that I am a temperate man. Then it won't hurt you to say so. You won't be singled out for everybody to talk at as I shall. Everybody has talked at you for months for the other thing. Give them a chance to alter the story. I mean to, but I'm not going up there to put it down, as though I had lost all my manhood and was not to be trusted without that. Why, Hartzell, said Mr. Cleveland, in almost impatience, I consider that I am to be trusted, and yet I was the first to pledge myself to-night. It is the people who mean business who are not afraid of pledges. Then why don't they all go up and sign it? There are dozens sitting around here to-night who shake their heads. Go up with him, McLean, said Mr. Cleveland, and show him that there is one less head shaken. But Lloyd drew back. Excuse me, he said, smiling, yet feeling annoyed and showing it in his tones. There is a great difference in our position. Hartzell must know that. I never have fallen. I need no props to stand by. I think he is foolish not to be helped when he has proved that he needs it. It was a most unfortunate speech. John Hartzell drew himself up, and the sullen look deepened on his face. "'I'm showing folks that I can keep my word without props,' he said haughtily. "'I have not drank a drop in weeks, and I don't mean to. No, Mr. Cleveland, there is no use in urging me. I'm grateful for all you have done for me and for my family, but I can't turn coward to show my gratitude. I've reformed, and there is no danger of my sinking. I hate my enemies too heartily for that. His face was dark. Mr. Cleveland turned away with a sigh. Save us from our friends, he said to Miss Wainwright a few moments afterward, 
when the meeting closed. There were friends of temperance here to-night who did more harm than we can undo in months. What did that young McLean say? she asked him. Oh, the old story, signing the pledge is a confession of weakness. He does not feel in need of any help of the kind. He is strong-willed and not in any danger. Poor fool! Look here, said Miss Wainwright. I wish you would ask that young man to take care of me home to-night. I can't go alone, and he might as well walk along with me as anybody. Just ask it as a favor. I have a word to say to him. Of course, Lloyd McLean was too gentlemanly to refuse such a request, though he had other plans. Miss Wainwright was very pleasant company, and said not a word about the temperance meeting. His nerves, which had been slightly ruffled, were quite toned down by the time they had reached the old Wainwright homestead. Nor did he object in the least to waiting in the great, cheerful sitting-room, while Miss Wainwright went for a book she had promised to send by him to Mr. Cleveland. End of chapter 25